last uh, Thursday, as Ted indicated, we had our general meeting where many of us were elected and re-elected to different positions and following that I, I want to speak on the discipline of serving and just what it, what it means. And of course the ministry of the church continues. There are some positions that haven't been filled and there are others that have yet to be created and ministries that that would be great if we could do, if we had the people. So the discipline on serving and our main text is Philippians chapter four, verse, chapter 2, verses 4 to 11. Now here are some quotes on serving by famous people and these people aren't necessarily Christians. The best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. That was spoken by Mahatma Gandhi. Everybody can be great because everybody can serve, Martin Luther King Jr. Service to others is the rent you pay for your room here on earth. That was spoken by Muhammad Ali. You have two hands, one to help yourself and the second to help others. That was spoken by the beautiful Audrey Hepburn. Here's a common expectation that we have today. We all want service and some even demand it. If I go to a restaurant, I want a smile from the person waiting on me. I want my glass to be refilled before it is empty. Don't ask, just do it. I want my food served hot, my server, the person serving me to be cool in attitude and everything to be done in time. Thank you very much. We all like to be pampered and treated like kings and queens, feel like royalty in our own delusional kingdoms. All because I'm paying for the privilege. Next to that, there's this expectation that there's there's a common problem. Next to that expectation, there's a common problem that we have today. You see, Servanthood is frowned upon, considered low class and not highly regarded. Despite this apparent anomaly, nobody is upset or threatened by a servant. We're always upset when people want to sell us something or who have an agenda or want something from me. But when somebody is serving me, my defences go down. Marketing companies tap onto this and uh, onto this knowledge, this common behaviour, and and they say service is their top priority. The problem is that they are offering great service, but at a cost. Somebody said, if you feel ignored in society, just stop paying your bill and see how much attention they pay to you. (laughs) Suddenly they show an interest. The Bible certainly has a lot to say about service. In fact, it has a lot to say about servanthood or those who are offering the service and the attitude that has to go along with it. 
Not just the action, but the attitude of the heart as you serve. So, because there is a problem, because we all, because we all expect it, we also struggle giving it. And the perfect model for us is, of course, our Saviour Jesus Christ, who made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Down, down, down he came. Philippians 2 7. So, what is a servant? A servant is first of all one who is under the submission of another. For Christians, this means we are in submission to God first and then in submission to one another. It means willingly giving ourselves to minister to others and to do whatever it takes to accomplish what is best for another. I will unpack this a little bit more, obviously. But as Christians, we have a couple of options. We have two options, in fact. Either we will seek to serve ourselves, which nullifies the capacity to live as disciples of Christ, because that's what not, it's, it's not about that. Or we will learn to live as servants, to, to serve our, our Lord, by serving one another. To offer ourselves in service to the kingdom because that is an expression of our faith relationship with God through Christ as we serve each other in the church. So, are we serving ourselves or are we serving God? And that is the debate. That is always intention, isn't it? So, first of all, as we answer this, will we be influenced by culture? From Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to, to 45, but I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Are we going to be influenced by culture? Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. So not only the rulers, but then the officials, there's, there's this pecking order. You have that, and then you have that. And it's all about a certain, that's how authority comes down. And he said, not so with you. So he's already been countercultural right there. Not so with you. Instead, whoever, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. So that's a, it flips the whole thing upside down. And what was the problem that sparked all of this? Well, there was an argument, there was a discussion between you know, favours that when the, Jesus comes in his kingdom, one wanted to be on the right, the other one on the left. They wanted greatness while here on earth. Well, Jesus is there, let's put the order in, right? So these, these, these boys, the boys of Thunder, the James and John, they, they, they sought position of power for themselves. Why? Because they were foolishly thinking that such a status would give them happiness and significance. They wanted positions of authority, of praise and power. If not in this life, then definitely in the next. 
And our Lord answer, he, he gives an answer which points to the problem. He said to them, guys, you don't know what you're asking. And on top of that, you are following the pattern of behaviour in the world. You are being influenced by the current in society. That's how the world functions. That's how authority works in the world. But, so don't be influenced by the models that you see around us because that's not the way the kingdom works. And of course, when the other disciples got wind of the request of these two, they became indignant. Why? Because these other guys got in first. And they had the same bad attitude as well. And this is the first generation of believers. Right? We followed on from that and these are the very ones, these 12 were the ones who were influenced directly by Jesus who walked with him, ate with him, heard him, saw him, saw his example over and over again and yet they had this attitude. What about the rest of us who are separated by a couple of thousand years? And yet this spirit was already there, right there at the very seed, at the very beginning of the church as displayed by these 12 disciples, or these two and then the rest. And this shows how striving how for position, for power, for praise quickly ruins our relationship in the body of Christ. Creates disunity, creates division. But servant living is the opposite to that. It's the very opposite of that. So that's been influenced by society. What does it mean to be influenced by Christ? From John chapter 13, verses 3 to 5. And this is already Jesus in his final, final hours, his final days. And this is what it says. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. So this, we, it's a very well-known passage, the story. It illustrates the source and the nature of the heart of a servant. On the night before the crucifixion, the Lord Jesus dramatically has to drive home the issue and nature of what it means to be a servant. Imagine the scene. All had been prepared for his last meal with his disciples with the exception of one thing the ceremonial washing that had to happen before they took part of the Passover meal. According to the custom of the day, a servant with a basin of water and towel in hand would wash the feet of the guests. But there were no servants. What? I thought you were arranging that. 
Oh, I thought you were. No, there's no service. So who's going to do the washing? Who will take then the position of this servant and perform the task? We can imagine the disciples looking around, but not for a moment considering it, that it could be them, themselves. Then out of the blue is a perfect picture and lesson of servanthood the Lord Jesus rose to the task. He put a towel around his waist, took a water in a basin and began washing the feet of his disciples, assuming the role of a slave. And it wasn't, okay, fine, I'll do it. No, (laughs) it wasn't. That, That reaction you might expect from me, right? But not from Jesus. Having given them an example, Jesus drives the truth lesson. He didn't just do it, then he told them. If he, their master, and the one they worship, assume the role of a servant to minister to others, then certainly they must likewise take the towel of servanthood and minister to others. Why? Because true blessing comes in serving others. That's the rule of the kingdom. Richard Foster says, in some ways we would prefer to hear Jesus' call to deny father and mother and houses and land for the sake of the gospel than this word to wash feet. Radical self-denial gives the feeling of adventure. If we forsake all, we even have the chance at glorious martyrdom. But in service, we actually experience many, many little deaths of going beyond ourselves. Service banishes us to the mundane, the ordinary, Trivial. End of quote. You know what he's getting at? He's saying that even if if we say, oh, I'm going to be an adventurer, I'm going to go as a missionary to deepest, darkest Africa and give my life to the kingdom. And everybody will go, oh, bravo. What are you going to do? There's already many Christians in Africa, right? Maybe more than in Australia, right? What about reaching out to the gospel to your neighbour? No, no, I can't do that. We used to get missionaries in Paraguay. Uh, I've got many stories of missionaries in Paraguay when I was there. And, and Dad, who was a pastor, he, many times he would clash with the missionaries because they would live in their beautiful houses, drive their beautiful cars, And even when Dad would plead with them to come and help take a pregnant lady from the villages to the hospital, the missionary says, well, I can't, the car's going to get dirty. I don't want the combi full of mud. Couldn't understand it. Couldn't understand it. And you're the guys who are called to be missionaries. What? 
servanthood <laughs> means getting dirty. Right? At the very least. The ordinary, the trivial, when no one is applauding, no one is looking. Just going out there and doing it. Which brings to the next point, which is humility, from Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. What is humility? Humility is not denying your strengths or what you are good at. No. Humility is being honest about your weaknesses. Humility is when you're so... It was once said that the true way to joy in our lives is Jesus first, others second, and you or ourselves last. Usually it's, it's flipped the other way, right? Me first, God second, and others, well, last. And, and even as I say that, that, there is a fear that comes out, something that sounds something like this. If I do that, people are actually going to be taking advantage of me. They're going to walk all over me. Again, Foster says that we must see the difference between choosing to serve and choosing to be a servant. Choosing to serve and choosing to be a servant. When we choose to serve, what happens is that we are still in charge. We decide how and when to do it. We're still in control. We decide who we will serve and when we will serve. And being in charge, we will worry a great deal about anyone stepping on us or taking charge over us. But when we choose to be a servant, we give up the right to be in charge. Can you see the difference? And there is great freedom in in this. If we voluntarily choose to be even taken advantage of, then we cannot actually be manipulated because that's what we've been called to do. When we choose to be a servant, we surrender power. And that's the thing. Surrendering power. And we become available and, yes, even vulnerable. Vulnerability means there's a possibility you're going to get hurt. And that's okay. You're going to get offended. And that's okay. Dry your tears and get over it. Do it again. And there's obedience, Philippians 2.8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. That's obedience, even to death, obedience to death on a cross. Now, I, have, I know that we have repeated this many times, but because we are so easy to, to forget, let me just repeat this again. Jesus did not come to earth as a king, as a general, 
as a multi-billionaire, as the head of a corporation. Though he could have, he could have. He came as what? He came as a servant. In terms we can understand, as he was growing up, he worked in a carpenter's shop. He was cleaning his earthly father's workshop. You know, using the broom, putting things together for the first 30 years of his life. As he was growing up, he could be the boy cleaning the toilets at McDonald's, stacking the shelves at Woolies, carrying your luggage at the hotel. And no one would have given him a second look. That's what it looked like. Now, even as I say that, some of you who are here perhaps have worked at McDonald's, perhaps have worked in a hotel carrying luggage, perhaps you have cleaned toilets, perhaps you have stacked shelves at Woolies and say, well, what's wrong with that? And you're probably offended even as I bring those illustrations up. Well, get over it. What do you you think it means to be a servant, for goodness sake? And as you carried those luggage to the room, you didn't even get a tip. Not even a thank you. Christ was willing to obey the Father's plan. He didn't come here with his own agenda. He came here with the Father's agenda. He was willing to be obedient to that. To be a good servant, we must also be obedient. Doulos, by definition, means one who is governed by the will of another, governed by the agenda of another. It was a term given to a bond slave. And as we all know, the slave owes his master absolute and exclusive obedience. A lot of people want to serve the Lord if it's convenient, but the real servant will serve the Lord from conviction and obedience to the work you're called to do. You simply can't serve if you can't obey. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, The one thing required of a servant is that he be faithful to his master. The one thing required of a servant. Be faithful. So what is God laying on your heart to do as an act of service? Is there anyone who needs your help? Maybe it's just someone who needs some encouragement or someone to pray with them. Are you willing to obey the Holy Spirit's leading when he moves to serve others? Or are you going to resist? And that takes us to the motivation from Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. We go back a little bit further in our Philippians. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So if it happened with Jesus' disciples, selfishness, it can very easily creep in when we are engaged in kingdom work when we're engaged in church work. 
while there are undoubtedly many, many reasons for this and sociological and character and whatever you want to put it down to, I think they were sort of reduced to down to two. First of all, people often serve others from their own need for approval or significance. That is a problem. Yes, Christians do generally understand that they are to live as servants, but often our preoccupation with our own significance robs us of the ability to serve from the heart. In our society today, such a selfish pursuit is no longer seen as a disorder or a problem or even a sin, but as normal to be accepted. It's seen as natural. It is presented as a legitimate need and something everyone should pursue. It is more important today that the child, the children feel good about themselves then they learn their ABC on the two plus twos. People often wear themselves out, even wear themselves out, demonstrating the Christian model of just sacrificial work. They work themselves to the ground just as long as somebody gives them some praise or some thankfulness, just some acceptance in order to gain that position. Oh, he's a faithful worker. Really, is that the reason why? Because... They're always there, working themselves to the ground. Because if we're not extremely careful and we need to check our motives, we can fool ourselves. We can be engaged in all kinds of service while actually serving our own neurotic needs for acceptance. If the underlying motive is some form of self-love like praise of others, it easily becomes hypocrisy. A good example of this, and, and this, and this fellow is not a Christian, he's an atheist, in fact, he's done a lot of good in our society. His name is uh, Dick Smith, you know him, he's a multimillionaire. And uh, he actually said, and I'll quote, he says, In truth, my philanthropy has always been for quite selfish reasons. That is, it is self-satisfying. It makes me feel good and allows me not to feel too guilty about the wealth I have compared with many people. He's honest. He's saying all the money I give is actually for very selfish reasons. Can you see that? Can you see how, how insidious it can be? Secondly, we need to serve the real needs of others and not just their wants. Like I said before, we we live in a self-centred society that wants and expects comfort and happiness in all our pursuits. Um, Happens in churches. We often hire pastors and pay persons to do work, you delegate. You say you, instead of people doing the, the work of the church, which is a model of ministry, we pay someone to do the youth, we pay someone to do the children, we pay someone to do the cleaning, 
we pay someone for this, we pay someone for that. And we pay the senior pastor, we pay the other pastors to look after us. And yet, the model in the Bible is that pastors are not to be your ministers, they are there to equip you for ministry. Ephesians 4.12 One of the clear goals in the scriptures is that it's, it's the equipping the saints for ministry. We, especially Baptist churches, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. I'm not here as your highfalutin, you know, emperor telling you what you must do. It's a, my prayer is no more powerful than your prayer. You have direct access to God. I am not your priest. I'm your shepherd. I'm there to build you up. Yes, I will pray for you. I will encourage you. But I'm also there to, to sort of say, come on, get moving. You, you are accountable to God. I can't save you. Only God can save you. But let's serve together. Let's move on into greater service. You're not serving me. You're not, you're not doing me any favours here. You're serving Christ. You do that by serving others in his church. It's, it's the involvement of the whole body in ministry according to the gifts and abilities and talents that God has given us. You need to be involved. You need to be used for his purposes. Otherwise, you will spiritually waste away. It's very hard to serve the Lord by thinking that church is simply by watching Zoom or watching a, a preaching on, on YouTube. We're actually called to serve within the context of a church. This is why we're here. The great uh, violinist Niccolo Paganini, he lived in the 1800s and uh, he willed, when he died, he, he willed his marvellous violin to the city of Genoa on condition that it must never be used again, never be played. And the wood of such an instrument, while used and handled, wears only very, very slightly, but if it is set aside, if it is never played, it begins to decay. And Paganini's lovely violin has today become eaten by worms, useless except as a relic. Moral of the story is that a Christian's unwillingness to serve may soon destroy his own capacity for usefulness in the kingdom. You have to be used by God. Okay, so what's the point? Why, why do we do all this? Well, there is the question, the answer is rewards. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 to 24. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive, and here it is, an inheritance from the Lord, as a reward and just 
in case you missed it, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. We are serving. It is the Lord. Paul is telling us here that we are really serving Christ when we serve other people. Yes, I think that many have given up on serving because we have been disillusioned or hurt or feel unappreciated in the past. Some have worked tirelessly. No one has noticed and said thanks for what they've done. Ever felt like that? Yeah, pretty normal. But you see, even though it's nice, even though it's, it's helpful and appreciated, I really don't have to get a reward or even a thanks from the one I'm serving. God will give me the reward. Now that should help us relax because after all we're not doing it for the person in front of us but unto the Lord. And that should ultimately have the bearing on how you do it and the attitude with which you do it. That means you're going to do it well with a good attitude, a good disposition and a smile and even when you're taking a selfie while you're doing it. It's not going to be published on Facebook so that everybody knows what a wonderful servant you are. (coughs) Just doing it for an audience of one, for Jesus Christ. In addressing this very issue in Hebrews, we read Hebrews 6.10, It's wonderful relief to know that God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. He won't forget. God doesn't suffer from dementia. Right? He remembers everything. Everything. And because God sees it, And because we believe it and because we know what he's expecting of us as his children, we do it because he told us to do it and that's what matters because we're going to serve from the heart. May God help us to continue to serve him until the day he calls us or until the day that he returns. Amen.